Man, it's so good to see you. I didn't even realize it was a holiday weekend until Friday because, you know, we don't get the holiday off. So I'm glad to see you all on this kind of a weekend. Uh, if you're a guest, I'm David. Uh, I'm, I'm the pastor. We're so glad you're here. Come, come to any of the things we have going on that to pertain to you. We'd love to have you, especially two weeks, Epic Sunday. It's going to be, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, yeah, Epic. So come. It's going to be a great thing. Uh, we're in a series right now on grace. And, and grace is one of those kind of Christian themes. It's one of those Christian um, doctrines that we, we, everybody hears about, we, we can't understand it, we kind of simplify it, but sometimes we miss the real depth of it. And so we're, we're in a series in October called uh, Grace, God's Response to Sin. Because ultimately the reason we need grace is because of sin. And so that's what it is. The first two weeks, last week and this week, we're kind of dealing with the basic teaching about grace. The last two weeks we're going to we'll look at some examples, one in Acts, one in the Gospels, uh, so we can kind of understand grace through, that, through, the, through the life of someone who experienced it. Um, and so last week we, we kind of looked at, uh, as bad as it gets, the terribleness of sin. In Romans 1 we looked at sin, how bad sin is, to kind of understand why we need grace. Today we're going to come to a little book called Titus, written by Paul as well. Uh, he wrote Romans, he wrote Titus. And then from Titus 3, verse 3 through 7, the power of grace over sin. Because that's what really matters. We've got a sin problem. The power of grace over sin is what matters. I'm going to go through the passage in a few minutes in the sermon. But here's the thing that I want you to see from the message today. This is what I want you to get out of it. That it is the grace of God that overcomes the sin of man. It is the grace of God. The grace of God that overcomes the sin of man. There is nothing on our part we can do uh, to overcome our sin. We want to do it. We want to try to overcome it. It's just nothing that we, you and I can really do. Now, <clears throat> when Paul wrote, wrote Titus, this is one of the last books he wrote. Uh, he wrote three letters together, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. We call them the pastoral letters because Paul writes them to either Timothy or Titus kind of in a pastoral term, tone. He's writing to the churches that they're pastoring, but he's writing to that church through them to help give them some authority and authenticity to deal with some problems. The last letter he wrote that we have is 2 Timothy. But Titus was right before that. Uh, Paul, we know in Acts, end of Acts, was in his first Roman imprisonment, about 62 or so uh, A.D., and then he got out, and then we know from 2 Timothy, he died in his second Roman imprisonment. Uh, but he wrote Titus right before that. And um, he writes Titus, and he tells Titus, and Titus is pastoring this church on the island of Crete. We, Paul at some point went to Crete, established his church. Like many churches, it has problems. That's why Paul's writing a letter. And Paul mentions that he is an apostle and that he is a bondservant of Jesus. Paul has a certain authority. And by, by you know, reminding them of his authority, he started that church. He's saying what he says to Titus carries the authority of Paul. And, you know, Paul also has some authenticity to deal with the subject when to see, because Paul was a man who had been blessed by the grace of God. He was a man who was out killing Christians, we know from Acts chapter 8 and 9, uh, 7 and 9, until, until the grace of God got a hold of Paul. So he has an authenticity as well. Uh, now, remember... Last week, we kind of set a definition of grace. I want to remind you what that definition is. And, and here it is. Grace is the gift of God as expressed in his actions extended. Notice, actions extending mercy, loving kindness, and salvation to people uh, instead of condemnation and judgment. So it, it's God's work. God's acting. Uh, and he's acting with, with love, with mercy. With salvation, we could also add forgiveness in there. That's part of mercy and love. We could add some other things, but those are things we focus on uh, instead of condemnation and instead uh, of justice, which is what we deserve for our sin. And so as we come to this passage today, th there's, there's a phrase in verse 5 that sticks out. In, in Titus 3, 5, it says, he saved us. God saves us, but he saved us. The word saved is important. I've mentioned 
this word to you many times in my preaching here. And, and I, I want, want you to kind of understand that this whole passage is dominated by the idea that God saves us. The word save means to rescue from danger. Uh, it was used and oftentimes as an illustration uh, used by people to depict someone who was uh, on a boat in the sea and the boat capsizes, they're sinking, they're holding on to some you know, driftwood or maybe a lifeboat or something for their life. They're going to die if someone else doesn't come by and save them. They can't save themselves. That's the picture. God saves us. It, when it says he saved us, it means a one-time act. It's complete. It's final. There's nothing else that needs to be done. So what we see when God saves us, that kind of dominates the passage. What we see starting in verse 3 is we see our condition. Our condition is the way God sees us. It's not the way we see us. I know the way we see us matters to us, and I get that, but what matters is the way that God sees us. Our condition is the way that God sees us. So verse 3 says this, for we also once were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Now, we already established last week. Uh, in Romans 1, that we're, we're sinful. God sees us. He says, you know, Paul says we're godless. We sin against God. We're wicked. We sin against people. Paul, you know, we just make sure we understand. Paul is saying the same thing here about our sin. You know, our, our sin, we were foolish. You know, uh, the Greeks thought of themselves as being wise. In the book of uh, Corinthians, Paul reminds them that the foolishness of men, uh, the wisdom of men is foolishness in the eyes of God. We are foolish in our sin. Our sin, we're disobedient to God. Um, and, and in our sin, we deceive ourselves. We are slaves. Paul said he was a bond slave uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ in, in chapter 1. Here it says we're slaves. We're slaves to our lust, our pleasures. They dominate us. Uh, we are, we're full of malice. That word means uh, evil, wickedness. Uh, there's a twisted part of our nature. We envy other people. We want what they have. You know, people hate us, and we hate them. That's a horrible way to be described, isn't it? People hate us. We hate people. We're just kind of twisted and evil. And that's how God and that sees us. Paul said, this is how God sees us in our sin. And so we need to understand then, this is how God sees us, uh, our condition. Let's understand something about God's nature. Because God's nature is how, is how it moves him to act. It is the nature of God that moves him to act. Fundamental to anything about the nature of God is that God is holy. When we say God is holy, it means he's complete, perfect. He doesn't lack anything. He is a holy God. But Paul sets out some things about the nature of God. In verse 4, we are said this, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Notice God is our Savior. We're normally, we think of Jesus as Savior. And obviously Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's his title. But salvation always comes from God. In fact, in this passage, we're going to see God, who is the Father. We're going to see the Holy Spirit. We're going to see Jesus Christ. It is, in its nature, a Trinitarian passage. The Trinity is there, God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The word Father isn't used, but the title of God, first, that. Son isn't used, but that's Jesus Christ. And, you know, people, there are some within the Christian community, and I don't know how we let them in, but evidently we did. You know, there's some within the Christian community that deny the Trinity. And say, you know, that's not taught. And while the word Trinity isn't used, to say that Trinity is not taught uh, is to simply be ignorant of Scripture. And, I mean, this is, this is clearly taught here. We're going to see God. We're going to see the Holy Spirit. We're going to see Jesus Christ. I mean, it's there. So God, and notice this about his nature, is his kindness. He's a kind God. Now, we saw last week that God has wrath. And if you weren't here, please understand the wrath of God is not like our wrath. It's not a vengeful, I'm out to get you, I'm out to hurt you. Wrath, the word for wrath we saw last week... It's a word that deals with patience, but that at some point God has to deal with sin. 
some point, God, holy God, is going to deal with rebellion. He's patient in doing so, and he's just in doing so. Part of the nature of God is to have wrath, but part of it is to have kindness, too. We, we should never see the characteristics of God as ever being in opposition. There's no, there's no tension between the nature and characteristics of God. Sometimes in our life, there can be tension but between our pride and our humility. You know, So some things we have pride, but we need to be humble, and there's that tension. It doesn't exist in God. Every aspect of God, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his justice, his wrath, his kindness, they all act in perfect harmony and unison with one another. He is kind, and he says he has a love for man. The love for man, that phrase, comes from one word in the Greek language. We normally think uh, of love, if you hear messages about love, and they talk about the Greek. And I know you probably don't like the Greek. I get that. I didn't like it much either, but it's a part of our life. And the, 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 word, the word for normally we use is agape. It's a self-giving kind of love of God. But this is not the word agape. It's the word phileo, the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo is that idea of brotherly love. It's the idea of tenderness. And the word actually used is philo, phileo, which is the word for, for love, and the word for man, anthropos. And uh, so is philanthropoi. And we got our word philanthropy from it. And God has a love for humans, a kindness and a love for humans, which then is what we see in verse 5 when it says, and he saved us. Because of his love for us and his kindness, even though we were full of sin, you know, and we were evil and twisted and hating one another and being hated, he saved us. That dominates everything. Now, when it sa says he saves us, here's what it is. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. This is a very, very deep verse. It's got a lot to it we kind of need to look at. So he saves us, and, and Paul makes it clear he doesn't save us by any of the deeds of our righteousness. The word deeds is the word, uh, the idea of effort. Uh, our word energy kind of comes from it. And there's no energy involved with our salvation. Uh, uh, righteousness, righteousness is always to set things right, to be right, particularly in the eyes of God. When righteousness is used with God, it is used with this holy righteousness that, you know, we are sinned against the righteousness of God. When we have the righteousness of God, we have that right standing with God. We are right with God. When righteousness is used of, of us, it's our self-righteousness, our desire to, to make, be self-righteous. It's the righteousness that we generate, which is a failing kind of righteousness. Paul says there's nothing that we do that we think is righteous. None of our deeds are involved in saving us. There's nothing that we do, no deeds, no energy. No matter how righteous we think they may be, that is part of our salvation. It is by, he says, his mercy. You can read it this way. God, he saved us by his mercy. That forgiveness, the mercy of God, that compassion of God, based on part of his kindness, the love he has, his mercy, he saves us. And then he, he, he says it this way. But So you understand the process, and he gives us kind of the process. It is by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, he, he, the Holy Spirit... When, when we look at God working in our life, and we understand there's one God, but he has three personalities. One nature, but three persons of, of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're used to thinking of Jesus Christ as being the one that saves us, because he does. It teaches that. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose back to life so we may have eternal life. He saves us. But when he saves us, he does so through the Holy Spirit. In the book of John, in chapters 14, 15, and 16, as Jesus is going away, he's a few hours from his death, he talks to his apostles. Now, Paul isn't part of that group because he's not an apostle yet. And he says to them, I'm going away, but the Holy Spirit will come. And when the Holy Spirit will come, he will convict you of sin and of righteousness. It is the Holy Spirit that the Lord uses to bring about the actual working of our salvation internally. 
And so here we see the Holy Spirit at work. Uh, and it says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal. This is kind of a complicated phrase. There are two fundamental doctrines about our salvation taught in verses 3 through 7. They're important. Now, I realize I'm giving you a lot of theology, and it's a little heavy, and that's okay. Sometimes you need a little of that. We can't always just, everything can always be, you know, light. Sometimes you got to get a little deep. And so two key doctrines taught, regeneration and later on justification. If you were, say you were a, 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 say you were all in seminary right now, working on your master's or your doctorate, and I was your teacher. And first of all, so I'd flunk right out half of you right off the bat. You'd be out of here, gone. Just be gone, all of you, because you know, that's the way they work. And I was to teach, though, the very essence and core of what salvation is, to teach, to teach you the fundamental doctrine theology. Two of the most important components that I would teach you is regeneration and justification. The word washing does not have anything to do with baptism. Some people think it does. There are groups that believe that we are saved by baptism. They believe in what is called baptismal regeneration. And I don't want to pick on anybody, but if you grew up Church of Christ, your doctrine as the Church of Christ growing up was that you have to be baptized to be saved. Catholicism, basically, you have to be baptized to be saved. If you have to be baptized to be saved, you basically believe that somehow baptism is connected to regeneration. Paul obviously doesn't believe that because he talks about grace. And our works, our deeds, and baptism is a deed, so our baptism can't save us. He's talking about that inner quality of sin. So obviously what washing means here, the idea of washing is the idea of cleansing. We do need to have our sins cleansed. Baptism doesn't do it. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't wash away your sins. Baptism, physically, all it really does is get you wet. Well, baptism is important, and we're going to have a baptism in two weeks. And if you're a follower of Christ and never been baptized, contact us. You need to be baptized not to save you. It is an act of obedience to God. That's just important. It symbolizes our salvation. It's important that we're baptized as obedience. But it doesn't save us. There's a cleansing that comes by the Holy Spirit. It is called regeneration. The word regeneration literally means to be born again. That's the word. It's to start something over brand new. If you work for a company, maybe you got to put a, a presentation. Some of them might say you need to generate a report. You need to come up with a brand new report. But if you, the report's messed up or you made some errors, they may say to you, you got to do it again. you got to regenerate that thing. It has to be another process. We, in our sin, separate our relationship with God. We need to get it back. Be, maybe I could use this term in this crowd, rebooted, so to speak. It is the washing of rebooting. <laughs> this doesn't even sound right, man. I'd flunk out of seminary for that. But that's the regeneration. It's to start over again. It's, it's to be cleansed of sin so that we're right with God. Renewal is basically the same thing. To renew something, to make it back to where it should be. So here we have this doctrine of regeneration. It is always by the Holy Spirit. He saved us by the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 6 tells us, that it was because he was poured out by Christ, whom he poured out, who God poured out upon us. He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So it's through Jesus we get the Holy Spirit. So, so you know, Paul says and reminds us, we are saved by Jesus Christ. But when Jesus Christ saves us, he pours the Holy Spirit into us. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. He cleanses us from our sin. Then we come to verse 7. This is so key. So that, verse 7 says... Being justified by what? His grace. We would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the word so that is important. It comes from a Greek word that whenever you translate a Greek, you see it's like, wow, that's an important word. It always speaks of result or purpose. They're interchangeable here. 
with the result or the purpose that we are what? Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, the word heir, it, to us, you know, we understand an heir is, you know, in someone's will, you're an heir. In our culture, you can challenge, you know, if someone gives you their money, you're the heir, someone else can challenge it. But in Paul's day, heirs were sacred. If you were an heir of something, there was no dispute, you were going to receive whatever you were the heir of. So what are we the heirs of? Eternal life. The hope doesn't mean wishful thinking. It really means the assurance. The assurance of eternal life. Now, think about that for a moment. He saved us in verse 5 for what purpose? Eternal life. That's what that means. You cut out all the middle stuff, and we still have to get to justification by grace. He saved us for eternal life. Now, eternal life, the word life is life the way it should be, the life the way God intends. Eternal means forever. It's the Greek word for without end. So there is no end to eternal life once he saves us. Now, it's an important part of grace to understand what God does, in great, uh, does to us in grace, we can't undo by our works. All right? Now, I know there are people, you know, Southern Baptists, I believe thoroughly. Once saved, always saved. There's better ways to word it, but what we mean is simply this. Once you're saved, you don't become unsaved. Here's the thing. Eternal life, by definition, eternal means no end. If you can do something to undo your salvation, it's not eternal, is it? And so either... I would say you weren't saved to begin with, or the definition of eternal that Paul kind of gives us is wrong. Paul's wrong about eternal life if you can lose it. I don't think Paul's wrong. Jesus says he gives us life eternal. I don't think Jesus is wrong. Pretty sure Jesus and Paul aren't wrong about salvation. We can be wrong. They're not. Think of the beauty of that. We have been justified by his grace gives us something that we in our sin can't take away. Now, he's justified. The word justified then becomes the key to kind of understanding this. It is the same word for righteous or righteousness, to be in right standing. It's not our righteousness, now it's God's. To be justified is kind of a legal term. Um, and and it, it depicts someone who in the eyes of the court is declared to be in right standing. So let's just, for instance, say you get a speeding ticket. And so you go into the court to fight the ticket and in fighting the ticket, you say, I'm innocent, and you prove your innocence. And so the court says, you're not guilty of this. You are in right standing. You've been justified. But even if you have to pay the ticket, say the ticket, they find you guilty, and you have to pay a ticket, and it's 100 bucks. I have no idea what tickets cost these days. Some of you might be able to help us with the, the price of tickets. It's out of, out of my range. But um, here's the thing. Once you pay that fine, technically, in the eyes of the law, you have been made right with the court. They, don't, you have, they have nothing against you. You have been justified. We can't pay the fine against God. We have sinned against God. We're guilty, and we can't make it right. There's no deed of righteousness that we can do to set things right. It's totally an act of grace. God declares us right. So regeneration through the Holy Spirit, he washes us and cleanses us of our sin, and we're born again. If justification, and it says we're being justified, it's passive, it happens to us, God declares us right. This is what his grace does to our sin. So let me summarize it this way. By God's grace, he saved us from our sin. Okay? By God's grace, he saved us from our sin. He did this in Christ by the Holy Spirit for all eternity. This is what grace is. We've sinned, but by grace... He saves us from our sin in Christ by the Holy Spirit for all eternity. Now, let me kind of take these last few minutes and uh, kind of help 
us flesh this out in a way so maybe we can understand a little bit. First thing, understand this, that God sees all of us the same way. He loves all of us. He does love us. But he sees us as sinners. And it doesn't contradict. He loves us. He sees us as sinners. He loves everyone. What does John 3, 16 says? For God so loved the world. And the world doesn't mean earth. It means people, even those in opposition. Sometimes you hear people say, and you know, in churches, and they're all self-righteous, and there are certain people God hates. Well, you know, I don't know where they get that from. He hates sin. He hates the sin we commit. Sometimes we put ourselves in opposition to God and we hate God. There's a hate relationship based on us, but God doesn't hate us. He loves us, but sees us as sinners. Last week, what did we say? He sees us as being godless and wicked. Godless, we sin against him. Wicked, we sin against others. We have lustful hearts, Paul said. We have degrading passions, and we have depraved minds. This is how God sees us. The other thing, though, is this. There is nothing we can do to set things right with God. We want to set things right with God. I want to set things right with God. There's, there's nothing I can do. The essence of religion is trying to set things right with God. I don't care what the religion is. I don't care if it's Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity to some people. Um, it's, whether it's one God or many gods, it's trying to set things right. Even if you're a, a skeptic or an atheist, you don't believe in God, you want to justify yourself. You, you, know, you, you may not believe in sin, but you understand there are things that you do that are wrong. There are things that you do that you shouldn't do. So there's this constant effort to keep trying to justify ourselves. And what did Paul say? There, we can't be saved by any of our deeds done in righteousness. So there, there's several ways we try to justify ourselves. Sometimes we try to adjust ourselves by this concept that we call a balance, that we look at our good and our bad, that they're in balance, and we want to tilt it towards the good, you know? So it's the quantity of your good stuff. You do enough good stuff that outweighs the bad. Even within Christianity, we see this. So you can do 100 things that are bad, but do 101 things that are good. You're okay. Do 104 or 5, and you're really okay. You're, you know, you're fine. That's how we see things. Some things it's about... Some people see things in, in, in a word of proportion, whereas balance has to do with quantity. Proportion has to do with quality. It's the quality of our life that matters. We can do a lot of bad things, but what we do that's good is really good. So I'm a really good husband. I'm a really good wife. I'm faithful to my spouse. I don't abuse them. I'm a good parent. I raise my children well. When my parents get old, I'm a good son or daughter. I take care of my parents. Uh, as an employee, I'm honest. I don't steal as an employer. I pay my people well. Proportionally, we do things well. That's how we do it. Sometimes it's about devotion. We're devoted to. This is what paganism was about. Paganism wasn't about loving gods or their gods. Well, they had multiple gods. It was about being devoted to. And so I'm devoted to you and appeasing them. Even within Christianity, you know, we follow, we believe. I'm devoted to God. I believe these things about God. I go to church this often. I do these things. I'm baptized. We show our devotion. And because we show our devotion, that makes everything right. And so it's based on us. And then finally, there's just a sense of universalism. Even skeptics and atheists, you know, universalism is, is that we're all going to go to the same place. There's a church in our, in our, um, in our city, a universalist uh, Unitarian church. And they all believe, they believe everybody's going to heaven one way or the other. So, you know, just, you know, coexist bumper stickers all over the place, you know. And, and even if, you, if you're an atheist and you believe that in death, that's the end of it, you basically we're all going to the same place. It's a universal aspect. So you try to justify what you do by where you end up. Here's the thing. None of those work with God. All of that fails. None of that sets things right. Because here's the thing. God saves us. He sets things right by his grace. It is God who saves us. 
he sets things right. He does it by his grace. He does it by regeneration, and he does it by justification. He saves us. What can I do to save him? Nothing. No person bears this out better than Paul. I'm going to talk about Paul next week a lot. But in, um, in 1 Corinthians, in the 15th chapter, Paul, it's, just, it's a church is struggling. Paul deals with a, a teaching that's come up. Some in the church of Corinth have denied the resurrection of the dead. They say we don't rise back up from the dead. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Jesus hasn't been raised and your faith is useless and we're all in big trouble. So he starts off in 1 Corinthians 15, kind of defining the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, was buried, was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and was seen. And he describes a list of people who've seen Jesus, and he includes himself. He says it means it's the worst. And then in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verse 9, in the first part of 10, this is, this is what Paul says. For I am the least of the apostles. He has seen Jesus. I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I'm an apostle. He already told them that early in Titus. But I don't deserve to be an apostle. I, I, I'm, the wor- I'm the least. I'm the last on, on the apostolic chart. I'm last. Why? Because I persecuted the church. I killed Christians. And now I'm a leader of Christians. That doesn't make sense to Paul. And then this is what he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm an apostle. I am a follower of Christ. Why? Not by me, but by the grace, the grace, the grace of God. It is always by the grace of God that we are set free. I know that our faith is a part of that. Paul writes, for by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves. Faith doesn't come to you. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? What is it? Grace and faith. So, yes, we have to have faith, but faith isn't a work. In fact, faith isn't even something that we generate. We don't generate faith. Paul says in Ephesians 2, I just said, I quoted, faith comes from the Lord. He gives us the faith. Now, what do we do? We exercise the faith. We grab hold of that faith. And we can only do that because of grace. So the issue is, what can we do? How can we be involved? See, we're all, in some way, the least of all of something, or we're the worst of something else. In some way, we're all out of kilter with God. What can we do to make things right with God? The answer is nothing. We can't do anything to make things right with God. Only He can, and He will, and He will save us in Jesus. And that is His grace. And even the faith that He provides is by His grace. So here's the thing. Look at your life. Where are you with the Lord? If you have never trusted Christ, you understand you're not in a right place with God. You are part of that depraved mind, lustful heart. You're, you're the person that, that has an, an evil intent to life. You're the one who is in rebellion. You are the one who is hating and being hated. That kind of describes your life. You are caught up in your sin. And you need to be freed. And there's nothing you can do for it. But the Lord can in grace. And what he offers you today is he offers you the faith that is necessary to receive his grace. And if you've never trusted Christ to be your Savior, you're not going to be able to do anything to make things right with God. But what you can do today is respond to what God offers you in faith. You can 
experience that grace that God provides, that cleansing of your sin, that regeneration, that being born again. You can experience what it means to be set right with God, to be declared by God to be right if you will trust Christ to be your Savior. If you've never done that, why don't you do that at this very moment? In just a moment, there'll be people up here. There'll be men. There'll be some women. Women, if you're more comfortable with them, the lady. Then why don't you come and say, I need, to, I need to give my life to Christ. I need to experience that grace. Could you help me? Could you talk to me? Could you pray with me? We'll, we'll do that with you. Or maybe you've already given your life to Christ, and you want everyone to know, I'm, I'm now a person who's experienced grace. If you're a true follower of Christ, you've experienced that great grace. When's the last time you thanked him for it? When praise him, as I was preparing this message, even this morning, you know, in some ways, I was so overwhelmed by the sin of my life and to think in all the rotten, lousy things I've done, God forgave me and saved me in Jesus. I was so aware in preparing this message that I absolutely don't deserve what I have. You don't either. So when's the last time you just said, God, thank you for the grace you gave me? Maybe you want to do that today. Maybe you want to pray for yourself or someone here and kneel or pray with one of us you can you want to join our church we'd love to have you I don't I don't really know what it is you feel you need to do or don't do but this is what I want to just remind you of don't leave this place today without experiencing the grace of God it's there trust him in faith well father thank you for this beautiful passage Paul so very clearly lays out what grace is there is simply nothing I can do to have eternal life. The beauty of life forever, it is mine. Thank you for it. But I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I didn't get it. I didn't grasp it. You gave it to me, and you saved me by grace. And you gave me the faith to believe in you. So I pray right now that you would touch the lives of those who need you with grace. Give them the faith they need to believe. Give them that beautiful gift that they may become your followers, that they may experience the mercy of forgiveness and that you will wash them, make them born again, and, Father, declare them right with you. In the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you stand? If you come, we'll greet you.